Hey everyone, Aaron Lolito here to introduce our May Roundtable discussion, which includes selections from the previous issue, which was from March. Joining me are Paul Smith, Chris Vogt, and Adrian Rosells. Paul has two short stories published in Wild Roof Journal, the first of which goes all the way back to our first issue in March 2020. So it's great to have someone who's been interested in our publication from the very beginning. Both of his stories are linked in the episode description, so please do give them a look. Chris and Adrian are returning Roundtable participants, so thanks to them for joining once again. In this discussion, we cover a few selections from Paul, and first up is a visual art piece titled Beauty Persists by Jocelyn Ulevicus, and this was the cover image for issue 7 in March. Next is a complimentary art piece called Hide and Seek by Olivia Lochisano. And apologies to Olivia for mispronouncing her name during the course of the conversation. So uh, if you're listening and you hear that, um, hopefully I corrected it in the intro I'm doing now. After that, there's a poem titled Unkempt by M.A.H. Hinton. And that's followed by a short story called Cover Letter Beta Test by Eugene Franklin. Each of these pieces is available on the podcast page, wildroofjournal.com slash podcast, uh, so you can give them a look, give them a read, and uh, see what you think, and if your ideas about them line up with ours. I hope this episode gives you a chance to revisit, or maybe even discover for the first time, uh, some of the excellent work that was a part of our previous issue. And I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as the four of us did having it. Okay, so uh, if you wouldn't mind, we'd do a quick introduction. Uh, Paul, you're the newcomer among us, so why don't you go first? Hi, everybody. My name is Paul, and I was a contributor to this issue. And thanks to Aaron and team for going through so much work and reviewing so much input from so many artists. It's, uh, it's greatly appreciated. I live in New York, and I'm a fiction writer. I love reading fiction. It's really my bread and butter. And I'm going to be talking about two pieces later with you today. All right, nice. Adrian? Hi, uh, my name is Adrian Rosales. I am one of the readers here at Wild Roof Journal, and I was on Roundtable one time before. So if you are an avid listener, you may recognize my voice. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm really excited to be here and kind of discuss some of the great pieces that came out of this issue. Perfect. And Chris? Hey, my name's Chris. I support my writing habit by teaching English. Adrian, I love your fabulous optimism that we have avid listeners. So I'm going to go with that for sure. And looking forward to comment on some of the pieces today. Perfect. Yeah. I know we had a couple of visual pieces that we were going to start with. And one was the cover image for our issue seven. So that will probably be a good place to start. And Paul, you kind of selected that. Uh, among all, all the pieces that were in the issue. So uh, give us your thoughts on that one first. The the, uh, the artist's name, Jocelyn Ulevicus. 
And I know I'm pronouncing that relatively correctly because I messaged her earlier today to make sure I wasn't too far off. And the, art, the piece is called Beauty Persists. Okay, so the first thing that jumped to me about this artwork is that it gave me a feeling of spring. And in New York, you know, spring is around the corner. And even though there are some fall colors in this, the, the green contrasting against the black was what struck out to me. And this was before I'd read a lot of work in the issue. And after reading a lot of the work, looking back at the, the cover piece, it's even more striking because I felt like this was a recurring theme throughout the issue, that there's this desire for a lot of artists to start anew and that there are shoots of growth and shoots of life coming through this rather dark background. So she's contrasting this, this, this largely black backdrop with, with strong colors that I, I felt were trusted colors. She, she didn't go for the, the brightest tones or the most subdued tones. So it felt like there was a feeling of, of trust coming through this darker period. And I just thought it was, it was done very tastefully and uh, it was a comforting visual image for me. Yeah, it's interesting. The word trust, I didn't really come across that when I was looking at it. But yeah, I mean, it comes through in the title, of course, but that's an interesting way to describe the colors. Yeah, it's, you saying that kind of reminded me a little bit of what I thought about it in the first place, which is just... Yeah, that the flowers seem to be coming through, the color seems to be coming through the dark background. And I, I also thought the the visual could be compared to an oil spill and that there were there was signs of life coming throughout the oil spill. You know, when you think of an oil spill, you think the ecosystem is going to perish after the oil spill. And for me, this was almost a reminder that life can regrow and nature can reset and come through again. And it, it evoked some of those feelings for me. I really like that. I Yeah, that had never occurred to me when I first saw this. It kind of just, in my mind, it looks like a collage of pressed flowers almost, um, which is maybe just because my mom loves to press flowers. And when I was a kid, she gave me this like giant Shakespeare book of just all of his works. And it was mostly just full of flowers. <laughs> um, so if I tried to read any of it, that was what I found. And this reminded me of that. Um, and I guess kind of just the idea of things persisting and life growing and persisting out of art, that brought me back to that mental image, which I hadn't fully realized was in my brain <laughs> until you mentioned that and just kind of the idea of life and I guess even if the flowers are smashed or the leaves are smashed or they're growing out of something darker like they're still in there in some really beautiful form and that's what that made me think of if that is I don't know I don't know if that's relatable to anyone else <laughs> yeah the one word I wrote down is familiar so that was kind of one of the questions that I had about this one was like, why or how does this, this piece kind of elevate? How does it elevate above something that's more like maybe trite? Because if I said I was going to make a picture that, you know, showed, you know, flowers coming up in springtime, um, it might be tough to do that with kind of the nuance and the, I guess the tastefulness uh, that this one does it with. So there are some of those elements that make it, a little bit strange, a little bit unfamiliar, even though we're working with some pretty familiar imagery. And like you mentioned, the pressed flowers also brings in the literary connection of, you know, pressing flowers in books, uh, which I, again, I didn't really put together as far as how the literary 
imagery, I guess, is embedded within that, which is kind of cool. Did you deliberately design uh, that image to show up in April, the cruelest month, reading lilacs through the dead land? <laughs> is that uh, on purpose or no? Partially. So the, you get some of these happy accidents because, I mean, in reality, the image was probably submitted, who knows, in the winter, over the winter. Um, so when it came time to publish, you know, it was probably February uh, where I was gathering everything together and then the issue came in, uh, came out in March. Yeah, it's kind of a, the timing worked out because if you submit it in March or April, it's not going to be in the issue for March or April. So yeah, it, it worked out the timing wise. Um, but yeah, it was partially intentional and partially just the practical, uh, the nature of the image was easy to work with in terms of a cover art because you could add text. Um, it wasn't like you're covering, you're already covering something up, but you're not covering up part of the image in a way that's kind of a, kind of makes it not look right or something. So it worked well, it kind of with the design element of it and obviously worked well thematically, so. Yeah, because the it speaks to the durability of that imagery, that uh, notion of everything from T.S. Eliot using that and that the, the roads that grew through concrete is the same riff and the idea that you can get so many uh, approaches to the same basic metaphor and still have it scan. Uh, I really like the word trust though, because I've been thinking a lot about uh, do you try to make decisions in your life or how much can you force your life into certain shapes? The idea of nature is that nature's gonna do what nature's gonna do. You trust that process. And if you think of yourself as connected to nature, there is kind of something very soothing and kind of very comforting about that, uh, kind of letting nature take its course. Yeah, maybe me and you are going through some of the same stuff, Chris, because I had a question, a similar question uh, about one of the other pieces. And I guess it relates because it is uh, some of the same imagery, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, the the connecting point might be like the there's the natural imagery and then the natural metaphor of spring and the return to spring and growth and rebirth and all that great stuff. Uh, but that there's also like the subjective nature of the of the image and the kind of layer is there and the title I guess could also play into that as far as like the subjectivity of beauty persisting. I don't know if that does that make sense in terms of the subjective interpretation. I think so. I think also especially just like in current times, <laughs> um, this idea of beauty persisting and finding joy and beauty in what is what is both like an insane time and an incredibly mundane time because we're trapped at home for most of it is <laughs> really important and so I think that is kind of a nice title and message for just the way life has been for me at least the last year and kind of coming all the way back around to March like once again this it's like I don't know, hopefully we're coming out of a dark time into a beautiful one. And at the same time, it's part of that cycle and the cyclical nature and trusting in that, that we talked about a little bit here. I guess, I mean, spring itself wouldn't have as much impact if we didn't, to, at least to an extent, question whether it would come again or some, something like that. Like you mentioned, Paul, you're you're in uh, in New York and me and Chris are in, in the other side of the state, but still in uh, same uh, same climate. And there are times, even though we've been through however many winters, 
where you, where you kind of cut yourself saying like, I don't know if we're, if we're going to make it out of this one. <laughs> so, and obviously, you know, we do, it does or whatever. So if you took it for granted, I don't think it would have as much impact uh, as it does. Yeah. And I think it's just a, it was a very timely image because everyone's getting vaccinated now and people are wondering what is the new normal? Are we really just going to resume as we always were now that everyone's getting vaccinated or are those people who got closer to nature during COVID, are they going to stay close to nature? And, and on, on the other hand, the message beauty persists is also reminding us that whilst the rest of our lives might change dramatically, nature is, was beautiful, is beautiful, will always be beautiful, and it, it is a constant for us. So it, it's just a very timely image. Yeah, I agree. And uh, before we get too far into our other pieces, I'll read uh, Jocelyn's commentary um, that she sent me earlier today. So I asked her just to kind of explain just more a little, a little bit of an informal way, like what was going on with this piece. So her, uh, her message back, uh, a lot of what I do is experimental, searching for a feeling, a contradiction, a tension from which the work emerges. This is beauty, a sense of awe, even transcendence. When this particular work came about, I was low on materials and also low on cash to buy any more supplies, but I felt this gnawing urge to make. Sometimes this feeling is very strong. I looked around at what I had and saw that I had all these dried flowers and pots of ink. So then I thought, why the hell not? But let me just glue all these flowers onto some paper and pour ink all over it and see what happens. And so I did. All the flowers were so achingly pretty, I was moved to tears. And I mean, what a metaphor for destruction and survival, that persistence, that will. The work also has some climate change undertones, nature will prevail. The problem is mankind's thinking that it's us versus them, as in them and nature. We learn to live with it, a part of it. The body isn't a boundary or the boundary that we think. The environment is our second body. Or you could even perhaps reverse that and it'll still be, it'll still work. But yeah, the, uh, so we weren't too far off. I kind of saved her commentary for the end. <laughs> um, but yeah, obviously the, the, a lot of the, the pathos behind it comes through. Uh, but I like some of, the, some of the details, the behind the scenes, uh, as it were of uh, using kind of the materials at hand to create something. Yeah, it sounds like if that was a test, we, we nailed it. Yeah, let's <laughs> say so. Sure. Let's say so. And uh, it's obvious, but it must be said every time I forget that it's true, because apparently my brain defaults. The limitation can be the artist's friend. If you have limited materials or parameters, um, that can be the best thing for you, especially if you experience block perennially. Right, exactly. Yeah, so there is a bit of a connection on the visual arts side. Uh, there is a piece called Hide and Seek, Olivia Laciano, La Luciano. I didn't, I didn't uh, message Olivia to pronounce her name, uh, evidently. Uh, but Olivia's piece was called Hide and Seek. And there's just kind of a, a, an overall connection to the imagery. So I know, Paul, you mentioned that one just as, as a point of connection. We don't have to uh, go too far in depth, but just to, just to mention that one and some of the interesting uh, elements in that one that played off of Jocelyn's piece. Yeah, that that picture had a, a purple hue to it. And a purple hue for me represented maybe a slight depression 
And then you had this oversized eye looking out into nature. And, and for me, it, it, it symbolized somebody looking for answers, looking out into this forest. What, what am I looking for, A, and B, what am I going to find? And is there happiness there? And it, it, it felt like a searching, a longing, a desperation that I found in other pieces in this issue. And it left me thinking, were a lot of the contributors even unconsciously perhaps going through mild depression, nothing serious, but just a, a, a mild existential crisis, thinking, what is my contribution to the world in terms of art? What is my contribution to the world going to be in terms of my career? And I felt that in that, in that image as well. Yeah, oddly enough, I realized today that I, on the website, the title of the image is usually placed underneath the image. And for this particular one, I just uh, the title wasn't appearing underneath. And so I was going through them today and I read a little bit of Paul's commentary. And uh, you mentioned, I think, longing or searching, kind of that look in the eye. I was trying to grasp like what that look is, what the expression is, because it's not an easy one to place. It's strange that it's, it is so expressive in this kind of unusual overlaid imagery. And then I popped up the title, and of course, the title's Hide and Seek. So we have it seeking, the searching, the longing. I feel like that comes across through that expressiveness, even though it's not a straight like portrait. It's not really even a human face entirely. It's interesting that that comes through so strongly. Yeah, I really, I really like this piece. This was one that I, like, I remember you put this on the Wild Roof Instagram a while ago, and I reposted it because I was like, this is cool. I want my whole family to see it. <laughs> um, I just, it's very striking. Um, but I was reflecting on it today because I knew we would talk about it a bit. And I realized that it reminds me, like, I guess on my, on first glance, I don't actually know what she used to, like, do the eyes and that portion of the image but on first glance I thought it was like also done in sticks somehow and then overlaid and it reminded me a lot of like works of art by Andy Goldsworthy who works like his medium is just natural elements like sticks and stones and ice and I looked him up also just to kind of make comparisons and in relation to the last piece, I think the idea of like being part of nature and like humans having a direct effect on nature was really strong in this one. Um, and kind of one of the ideas that came up for me when I was thinking about it today was like, like this one is kind of searching, seeking, as it says in the title, you've got these eyes kind of staring over the forest, but it's not like it's looking into the forest. It kind of feels like it's staring at me directly instead as the observer. And I was sort of thinking about this idea of rather than like looking for oneself in nature, humans are already part of nature. And it's just like where we are and what we exist as, but we've kind of removed ourselves from it and just see ourselves as like a different entity that can affect nature, but doesn't necessarily interact as part of it and this made me challenge that a little bit in myself which was interesting yeah as a, somebody who's a struggling half-assed buddhist i love the idea to connect the idea of trust trust the seed to grow but also trust that you are part of nature so you trust your own heart to beat and remember how to breathe when you're sleeping uh so nice 
when I am able to connect those thoughts, uh, to have them reflect as part of an emotion as opposed to an intellectual process. To clarify, a second ago, the, at the end of Jocelyn's statement, she said the, the environment is our second body. And that's what I was kind of referring to is if you reverse that, I think that's kind of what you're saying is like the, the body is our sec, second environment. It's, you know, it's part of the part of what came out of the environment. So it's, it's going to reflect that in this fractal kind of way. Unkempt keeps the nature theme going for one more piece. And then we'll uh, move off of that for, for our last piece. So M.A.H. Hinton was the author of Unkempt. Back to Paul, what did you uh, find appealing about that one? You want me to read it because it's so short? Sure. Okay. You lay the words down like a mason would stones for the wall of a small cathedral. No, not a cathedral. A small gatehouse then at the edge of a little frontier town where a road comes out of a forest and up and over an old wooden bridge. Again, no. How about this? A small garden where stones are set randomly as a border between wild roses and an unkempt yard. Yes. What I really enjoyed about this poem, besides the fact that it was a poem I could actually understand for a change, was that the size of the stanzas grows, but as the size grows, the housing of the words that the artist is looking at gets smaller. So in the first stanza, it's a cathedral. Then in the middle one, it's a, it's a, a small gatehouse. And then finally, right at the end, it's reduced to an unkept unkempt rose garden or just a small garden with, you know, with no, with no borders and some stones set haphazardly in it. And it's almost as if the smaller the, the housing was going to be, the greater the feeling of freedom was. And I like the, the, the visual effect of the way he laid it out. And I also like the, the diction. I just like, I think it was very smart. I thought it was a very crafty poem. And then, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Okay, I'll just I'll make a couple more points. Um, and I like the philosophy embedded in it, being that less is more. Because if there's one thing that COVID might have taught a lot of people is that excess that we have, whether it be in terms of using our time too much for for frivolous things, or too too many clothing items, or drinking too much. Excess isn't always the answer. If you know, if excess suits you, that's fine. But for a lot of other people, it seemed obvious, but it wasn't. And COVID might have taught them that lesson in a hard way that through 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 reduction, you can actually be empowered and be set free. And I really like the way that that philosophy came through right at the end in a very succinct way. I love that because I will often am torn between using the word crafty, use the word crafty. Because sometimes I feel like that word can mean clever, like a little, either a little snarky or look at how good I am at turning a phrase. Uh, but in this case, it seemed more the, like it was concise and it was able to sell an idea that uh, would often seem a little too cliche in other circumstances, tiny house videos, minimalism. And uh, so I think it was crafty in that successful way that it, it snuck a pretty profound idea that we might be familiar with in other circumstances, but allowed access to it. So you kind of feel it on that more emotional level. Yeah, I think, um, I don't know, this piece was just very peaceful to read for me. Like it just, it was small and it looks nice on the page. It didn't overwhelm me. Um, there seemed like just a very clear 
clear language, clear images and idea. Um, and I think that's kind of, I don't know, it's interesting with what it's saying about this idea of like less being more um, and kind of for me at the end, that last stanza about the garden, just the stones are set randomly, it's unkempt. Um, and in my mind, that's homey because personally I can't keep a space clean to save my life and everything's a little unkempt and that means I lived in it and that's good. <laughs> um, so for me, that's like a good, calm, happy, homey space. But then like the poem itself is very, specifically laid and it like in the first stanza it's talking about you're putting the words down like the mason lays his stones and I feel like that's what's been done here it's very tight it's well done it's specific in the way that the language is used and placed and then ultimately it's like but you don't need to do that <laughs> um kind of it's like that end idea that I took away at least and I thought that was in its own way very amusing to me <laughs> I guess if that makes sense as soon as I saw italics and I realized it's a dialogue, I said, uh-oh, well, one of these. And uh, the tightness of the craft, the, the level of actual craft involved, pulled me right out of that cynical mindset. But I have to, as always, uh, bring my own issues into it. And it just, to me, it seemed obvious that it was a romantic dialogue. Here's what a traditional love poem might look like. Well, here's a slightly better metaphor. And then finally... I, you know, pre presumably, if it is the romantic context, ah, a yes at the end. So uh, this metaphor, no, 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 not yet. Ah, that's the right one. Does that scan or, or am I just totally imposing my own <laughs> preconceived notions, uh, just assuming that this is a romantic piece? It wouldn't be a round table if we didn't get a romantic interpretation from you, Chris. So thank you for that. Your, your work here is done. <laughs> um, I think it works. I think it works. I didn't consider it myself necessarily in my, my reading of it, but yeah. I think this this poem will also speak to people at different stages of their artistic progress. So well, a lot of us, when we first start writing, and I'm a fiction writer, when we first start writing, we we look to a lot of places for advice, and perhaps sometimes we we force that advice into our work. And then eventually after a couple of years and you, you've made a few attempts, you start to be more trusting of your own instincts and your own energy, your own feel. And this is what the final stanza is saying to you, you know, go with it, make something beautiful, make your contribution that you want to make. That's, that's how I interpreted it. And, and I think it, uh, it would speak to people to different degrees, depending on where they are in their own artistic progress. I am absolutely going to steal forcing other people's advice into your own writing. That's uh, fantastic. And I can immediately imagine how many times I've done that. And uh, when you can start getting into a practice that involves letting a lot of that go and trusting yourself is very nice. And that was one of the, the questions I guess I asked myself during uh, my review of this poem and I'll, I'll ask you, but like, are there any times kind of playing off of that last stanza, are there any times when you've allowed uncertainty or randomness into your life, whether it's conscious and deliberate decision or maybe just reflecting back and you realized it? Does that strike anybody as like, oh, I, I got to this point only because of that circuitous route that like led me here. I wouldn't have been able to plan this to get where it led me. I've actually been thinking about that 
constantly recently, um, specifically yeah, in the so, context. So have I. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah glad you are. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm glad it's not just me. <laughs> um, but specifically in the context of this past year, I think I historically have been a person who cared a lot about having a set plan for what I was doing next and where I was going. I don't like leaving a space without knowing what I'm going to step into afterwards. But I had to change that in light of COVID and just the way that it changed everybody's life and plans. Um, and I actually, I like all the interpretations of this poem that y'all have just mentioned, but I think it can be read in a lot of different ways, depending on where you're at in life. And for me, this was making me think about the idea of like, okay, I can lay this, this really clear path out for myself, but then I, I'm a 2020 graduate. So I graduated college into the pandemic immediately. <laughs> um, and then, I mean, my ideas were like, I'm going to move to a big city. I'm going to travel for a little bit. I'm going to do, and those things are all immediately off the table. <laughs> so my plans had to change. Um, and in the moment that really upset me. But looking back on it, that is kind of a blessing in and of itself that like I had to learn to be okay with things not going the way I necessarily expect. And I think that will always happen in my life and it will happen in my writing. And it is why I get to do stuff like this now because I was sitting at home trying to figure out how to engage with the community beyond myself. And I decided to try and actually do the writing thing. And I found a little post on Submittable being like, Wild Roof needs readers. <laughs> and now I've ended up here. So I don't know, that is what this piece made me think about personally. And I'm glad you said that because that was very, I don't know, relatable for me personally. And this idea of taking a circuitous route and then you look back and it's actually, it's kind of nice once you get somewhere. <laughs> right. Yeah, before we started recording, Paul, you asked me, like, I forgot the exact question was something to the effect of, like, you know, how do you keep up the the website? How do you keep up the journal every, you know, month after month as far as I've gone so far? Does that sound about right? Was my interpretation yes. right? <laughs> okay. Um, and I guess that connects with, like, the question I asked because I guess part of the reason I do it and have been able to do it is because I have all the tools to be able to do it that I've gathered, like not with the end and goal of like doing this journal all of a sudden, but you realize, oh, I have, I, I've done this, I've done that, I've been exposed to this and that and that. So in the words of Jocelyn, why the hell not? If I got all this stuff to, to be able to offer, um, I'm gonna, you know, keep it up as long as I can. So not a plan, it wasn't like my, my end goal. It wasn't something that I even thought would be a very big deal when I first had the idea. But given given the world that's happened since uh, since the end of 2019, when I first had the idea, you know, it's just become more of a more of my life, and there's more time inside, and more time on the computer, and more um, more need to connect creatively, and less work responsibilities outside of you know other things. So that was a little bit of my thought process. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's amazing how much work you put in these issues. Uh, it's a thank you for all the work that you do. It really is incredible. I think that this kind of desire for people to be, I'm, I'm using the word freedom loosely because, I mean, we've had a lot of 
freedom in, in many sense of the word for a long time. But in a lot of these pieces, they, it felt like a lot of the artists were saying, I want to be more natural, almost more free flowing in my work, less prescriptive. And I don't know if that's a response to being contained in their homes or if that is due to something else. I don't know if you guys asked yourself that same question or not. Has anyone, and I'm sure Aaron knows where I'm going with this, has anyone here seen the movie Melancholia? Is that familiar? I have years ago, yeah. It's, I, I would gently recommend it. It's kind of a tough watch for, for people like me, uh, but the setup is it's a, a woman is getting married and it's her wedding night and there's a giant planet about to intersect with planet Earth. And But, but supposedly it's going to pass by. It'll be a beautiful celestial event. But it becomes obvious through the course of the movie that it's going to impact Earth and it's going to wipe out the population of the planet. The main character, the protagonist, the bride, is weirdly calm because she's had a lifetime of depression. And so her lifetime of depression and worrying about the catastrophic has strangely prepared her. Uh, all of that to get to when the pandemic became clear that it was going to be a major problem. My lifetime of anxiety and self-doubt suddenly became a superpower because I'm noticing everybody else's anxiety level go up and up and everybody's starting to think about the uh, level of catastrophe you might be facing. And it's like, what, what, you don't wake up thinking that the world might end most days? So initially, I thought that could be a benefit both to me and the writing is, well, I'm just watching the rest of the world come up to my uh, baseline anxiety level. But what I realized is I was kind of thinking about it upside down. Uh, what I should have realized is it's not a matter of me relaxing into everybody else's level of anxiety, but getting back to the key uh, word here for me, which is trust, kind of trusting the circuitous route. Uh, it's worked for me so far. It's gotten me here talking to the three of you today. And so really it's not, ah, see, finally, everybody else is as anxious as I am. It's a matter of kind of relaxing back into the circuitous route has worked so far. Doesn't mean nothing bad will happen, but particularly in thinking about writing, and I think a lot of the pieces that we're looking at has at least a desire for that trust or a trust in the circuitous route. And so I've tried to kind of bring that to the writing practice. Glad I wasn't on mute that entire time. I had a little panic attack there. <laughs> That's part of the experience, part of the Zoom experience, right? If we don't uh, have that little bit of a panic. Um, yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, so I definitely in the same ballpark as initially thinking, oh yeah, the world's just coming closer to where I'm or where I already am. But yeah, the obviously the the complexities of kind of living through it and you know the ups and downs of all that, we kind of have to find. Again, find our own way and kind of like go up and down with the, uh, you know, with our own baseline, how that adjusts um, and to be comfortable in that fluctuation. I don't know how, if this is too tangential. So if it is, you guys can stop me. Um, but I, that made me think about kind of just art and writing and all sorts of different art during the pandemic and how much more accessible a lot of it has become. There's readings happening online over Zoom that anyone can sign up to attend or, you know, big film festivals having to go digital as well, but they make it free. They make it available to a wider audience. Um, and I have thought a lot recently about like 
I think earlier someone mentioned the idea of like, okay, do we just go back to what was normal beforehand? And yes, like this has been a time where we lost a lot of connection, but in a different way, we're more connected than ever to certain things that used to be for the select few. And like, does it make sense to go back to normal in every sense? I don't necessarily think so. Um, but I feel like there will be a push for it because people want to feel like the world is normal again. And I guess what you were saying made me think about that and how, like, I love stuff like Wild Roof. I love it because anyone can read it and engage with the art and talk about it the way that we are right now. And I hope that out of all the anxiety and craziness of this year, like something good can come of just sharing more widely um, and having resources continue to be available in this way and on the internet. And I'm curious if that'll happen. Good points, yeah. Yeah, the accessibility, not only in the actual, the, the art, the writing itself, but the, just the, the distribution of it or the accessibility of it in terms of the audience it reaches. Let's take a turn into our uh, final piece, which is Eugene Franklin's cover letter beta test, which uh, does not deal directly with nature, although there is a quote from uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson in it. So I guess it's not too far astray, but it's a little bit of a different uh, different take. So we'll go back to Paul again. What was your uh, your initial appeal for this one? This piece I enjoyed because I am an immigrant. I came from South Africa. 10 years ago, but I came in a relatively and maybe statistically speaking privileged position in the sense that I already had a university degree. So although I was faced with some of the issues at a different, well, the same, the same issues as, as this writer comes up against, it was in a different tier. So same issues, but applied to a, a higher tier. So for me, I oscillated between supporting the, the the character and not supporting the character quite a lot throughout this piece, and I, and I really enjoyed how that was done. And I, you know, I want to ask Adrian about this later because she just said, you know, she's a 2020 graduate. Uh, it'll be very interesting to get your perspective on this. But for those who haven't read the the piece yet, it's 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 about a, an individual who has been through many jobs in, in many different roles, but none of them are fulfilling. The, the character feels frustrated that he cannot apply, I'm assuming it's a he, cannot apply his, uh, his intellect appropriately. And when he tries to, he sort of gets dragged across the coals for doing so. So he feels very limited, but then he also feels like he can't go and study more because it would just give more student debt and what's the point in doing that? And uh, so it, it all feels very futile, but then there are times when you're, when you're reading this and you think, well, if you're unhappy in the way you are now, my question is then, wouldn't you rather then take on the student debt, be crippled by the debt, but then maybe have job fulfillment? Because at the moment you have no fulfillment. So there's no win for this. And at the same time, capitalism is very clear on what it wants. It wants its pound of flesh. It's going to take its pound of flesh from you, whether or not you are crippled with debt. Uh, so that was very interesting because when I came to America and, and as I sort of climbed the, the, the ladder, I then started having to hire people. And when I was left on my own to hire, I had free reign to do as I please. And I would choose the candidates based on their past experience, but also more so on my interaction with them. Whereas when I had to hire with the input of others in my departments, 
often if if the 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 college that the, the individual went to was a good college that candidate would automatically get picked whether or not i had endorsed that candidate after the interview and so i started to learn i was living out in long island and you know i had no reference point to any of the educational institutions at that point but i started to learn okay if they came from this school it, it means something or if they come from this school it means something and and then slowly just to avoid the same conflict I'd encountered before, I would start applying those same filters. And if I got six resumes for a position and I saw, okay, this person came from this, this college, I would, I would apply some bias to that. And, and then every year doing the annual reviews for people, even if a person is exceptionally talented, there is some point in, 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 in at least in the finance department where you apply an invisible barrier or an invisible ceiling. You never say it outright to the person. You say, oh, well, maybe you should get your CPA or maybe you should do this. Only the public accounting firms will say to you, we will not make you a partner unless you get this. But for all the rest, we just we say it, but it's it's not said in, in express terms. So I, I, I sympathized and then I thought, oh, you know, you're just you're just a millennial who's who's ranting. And so Adrian, I mean, I can't wait to hear what you say. But it, I, I really like the piece, the way it was written, because I think it speaks to a lot of different generations at different uh, philosophical points of their lives. And at, at the current times now, it's a very topical guide. They do have to choose between big debt and, and job performance. And it's a tough choice to make. Um, and what does this represent for the American society? Is this some kind of indication of decay that you can get a, get a degree and that it's worthless and that it's meaningless according to this, this piece, that's what they think. Then the other thing I really enjoyed was that there were some really well-crafted sentences. Sorry to use the word crafted again, Chris. Mm-hmm. Uh, I should say well-constructed sentences. But this one I enjoyed. I floundered from the outset of my working life because, due to events too complex to explain here, I never got a ticket to ride the train reserved for smart people. I've had to run alongside it, waving my hands in the hope that some sympathetic passenger at a window seat will call for a stop to let me on. And why I enjoyed that particular sentence is because at some point in, in my climbing here in New York, I realized, oh, you don't have the credentials to get into a traditional company that is looking for kids that came from NYU or wherever. You're going to have to meet an interesting character. And then one day I got a call from a recruiter to meet the, the head of the company where I work now. And I met this guy and he was a rock and roll legend. He had jammed with Jimi Hendrix and all kinds of people back in his day. And I, when I arrived at this location, the factory, I thought, this is where I'm going to die. This is, this is all a big scam. This is going to be a snuff movie. I'm about to die here. And it was actually the old, uh, I think it's the Budweiser factory on Long Island, in Long Island, Long Island City on the water. And this guy happened to be from Cornell, and he was a very, he is very eccentric, and he's very famous and very well loved. And he actually never looks at anybody's uh, credentials. So what he does is he hires based on feel. So we, our company had a lot of very, and still does have a lot of uh, people with incredible credentials in, in low positions and sometimes with no credentials in some very high positions. And to his credit, he's run a very successful company uh, all these years with that very different, completely different to what's in this piece, that very different ethos. And that's why this, this entire article uh, was very interesting for me. Uh, one of the other interesting uh, sentences that I enjoyed was, it's against the rules to treat me as a person, a life form with a unique story, special terrorisms, 
and developed insight. And I thought in some strange way, this ties into some of the other pieces because this sentence is saying, you know, here again, I have, it's, it's a version of the desire to be free of the constraints of modern life, to be some kind of a small garden or to be the insight into the world. It's, it's basically saying, I do not want to be confined to your, your constraints. And it, it, uh, it, it spoke to me. Right. I'm glad that you uh, immediately saw some of the capitalist undertones. And for me, the what I'll describe shamelessly as the myth of the meritocracy in America, which could be degrading. And I think there's a unfortunately going to be an increase in universality of this tale. Right, right now, it seems like a well-written, well-crafted, and I'm, I'm using that in a positive tone, uh, version of what would show up in my diaries. And I'd be afraid to write it because I'd look like oh, the white male complaining about uh, being in America. And so I, I would never attempt that story or I'd never attempt to craft that into something. But this seemed to do it well, even though I felt that tension that you mentioned in my brain of should I root for this guy or not? Is this kind of first world problem complaints? And I sided with him. I forget exactly at what moment. I think it had to do partly with the craft of the sentences. It was just well-written enough to kind of draw me in. But also, he didn't sound bitter. I didn't hear real resentment. I heard frustration, some kind of philosophical uh, uncertainty with the setup of the meritocracy. But I didn't hear that kind of angry and titled uh, factor. And I said, ah, damn it, he got me. He kind of, kind of pulled me right into that narrative. Uh, Adrian, uh, I know you have to make your exit soon, so I want to get your thoughts on this one before we uh, yeah, go any further. Um, yeah, I, I do. This piece was definitely interesting to me, just in the phase of life I'm in right now, because I think it did speak to a lot of questions that I have, but also questions that I hear echoed back from my peers right now. Um, I get the sense that a lot of people I know would be happy to like, I don't know, I not necessarily do less, but to do something that's not necessarily considered prestigious or like not have this huge fancy degree, but have time to do things that really fulfill them. And like a lot of people I know right now want to make a lot of money and then like own land that they can live off of and stop playing into the sort of capitalist machine um, and just be able to support themselves and their loved ones in a different way. And I feel like this, it's coming from a place of what this is getting at. Like, I think specifically for me, the, there's a paragraph in here somewhere that's, it's not there. It's after he's talking about being very philosophical um, he says he cares too much to be put in the kind of roles that he's ending up in a lot of the time. And I, oh, here it is. It says, I always seem to care more too. It floors me how sloppy people are with their livelihood, how willing they are to accept mediocrity and collect a paycheck. I have to coach myself to care less, which is depressing for a passionate person with high ideals. And I thought that was funny and also interesting because I, think about that sometimes where I I actually I really like my job um and this piece also plays into what I do as my day job which is I am a college counselor for high schoolers <laughs> um, and so it's I like my job a lot but sometimes I get this feeling of like 
I can do this job in half the amount of time they expect me to be spending on it. And like, I can still do it well, but I have to be there a certain number of hours a day. And I have to like show a certain amount of like work in each of those hours. And there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, but I find myself doing this little dance where I feel like I care a lot about caring about my work. But then if I'm there longer than the amount of time I feel like I need to get the job done, I get frustrated with myself because suddenly I'm bored or I feel like I'm not trying hard enough and I'm not giving enough of myself to the work. And then I am upset that I don't care, but I do care. And it's all very confusing because I simultaneously care too much and not enough. (laughs) And I think, I don't know, this piece, it really struck me because I think that there's a lot of that in every job until you kind of land in the thing that you are happy with long term. And everybody has to go through several different roles until they find what that thing is. And I think that what I also liked about this was the way it addressed sort of yeah, the entry level jobs and what is it, what you have to have to get those jobs. And I think a lot of the time, if you're trolling LinkedIn, it's like, this is an entry level role, but you have to have your master's. You need three years of experience. <laughs> like, da, 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 da. Um, and suddenly it's like, but, but you said it was entry level. How do I, how do I start? (laughs) Um, and so this hit on that really well. And also I don't think college is necessarily for everyone. And that's something that I talk to kids about a lot, but then how can you counsel someone into like, I don't necessarily think college is for everybody, but you do sometimes need to show a degree or a certificate or a something in order to get any type of job in our society and how but you want them to care about that too coming back to this idea of caring and thinking and being able to do those things in your schooling or in your job Um, and I think that I would like to see wider opportunities available in the United States education system and job system And I think some of it changed during COVID, coming back to this idea of like what's normal and what's not. There's new ways of learning now and opportunities that open to people who could do it remotely and do things that they can't do when it's only available in person. And I'm curious to see if doors like that will remain open or if it will kind of start to shut down again once people are expected to do what is considered normal. I feel like that was a lot, but I hope some of that made sense. (laughs) I'm really glad that you brought up the livelihood line because it forced me to have a concrete version of a thought that I've had abstractly. What are the big currencies? Uh, Time, money, power. And of course, what does livelihood represent? You try to find an intersection point where you spend your time the right way. You don't waste that. And you get just as much power as you feel comfortable having in terms of being able to be in control of your own destiny, not necessarily having power over other people. And of course, time being the ultimate thing that uh, all of us has a certain amount of that currency. And the way that the three of those interrelate uh, is frightening when you have to look at it head on, which I thought this piece forced me to do in a wholesome way. Right. By power, do you mean something like autonomy, like power over one's experiences? Or something it's, it's worse it's worse than that I mean any of the intersectional kinds of power which could be autonomy I have the power to say no to this job so I could walk out tomorrow that would make me feel very empowered but 
money and power also are ways to uh, control other people. So it could be the negative side of that. And if you control people's time, how they spend their time, you have to be at work for eight hours straight, says it right there in the contract, you have power over their amount of time, how much money they're making. And by extension, you are able to use those three intersection points to control others. So the fact they're all kind of the same thing, or at least related, interrelated to each other, is frightening if you're in a system where demands are being put on you, where you can't use your own time to have your own autonomy and make your own money and still have a sense of purpose. And I, underneath all of that is, are you spending your time in a way that you'd feel good about at the end when you're running out of the time currency or not? Yeah, I think about that quite a bit. Yeah, the, the time spent, yeah, I guess also what you said. What was the last thing you said? Well, the depressing but real intersection of the three, the time, power, and money, and all three of them being interrelated. And if right. you think and of time as the, yeah. the prime one, that's the one on your deathbed that you'd say, how did I spend my time? Did I do it only to make money? Did I do it uh, for the acquisition of power? Or did I have enough independence and power to spend the time currency to it? And that they are all kind of interchangeable. It's frightening, but a, an important thing to be aware of, particularly if you have enough time left to use that currency wisely. Right. Time in the sense of time spent towards something with purpose. Yeah. So I think those are all really kind of underlying ideas in this piece, which is part of what makes it, I guess, relatable in the sense that if you're somebody who has a job who is thinking about those things, then you would be able to interact with it, I think, pretty well. I think that also this piece, like, it kind of does more tangibly some things that we were talking about conceptually in the other works um, in this like idea of sort of trusting the process and letting it be circuitous. And like this person specifically is talking about, he's had a lot of different jobs for maybe a short amount of time. And that's not always valued <laughs> as you're trying to apply into jobs. As you get older, they want to see you stick with something, but like, I don't know what's wrong with having a lot of experience in different skills in different places. And I think this, when I was reading this piece in relation to the other ones, I think had I read it on its own, I wouldn't necessarily have thought about it connecting to nature or like the way that humans can be part of nature and interact with it. But I think it does in its own way. And I'm glad that I got to read it um, as part of this set. So thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, and then there is the quote from Emerson. So there's kind of, it's not specifically related in that way, but there's kind of that self-reliance-esque connection that's placed at the end of it. What's interesting is that at no point does the writer give you a clue as to how he plans on getting out of this. So he says to you, okay, well, I'm not going back to school because I don't want to get the debt. So it left me as a reader feeling slightly um, uneasy because I felt that this frustration was just going to continue into perpetuity be because there's there's no solution. And capitalism is not going to sit down and say, oh, I'm going to help you, you know, fulfill your personality and your charms. And I, I'm not, it's never going to give regard to that until you get to a certain level. At, at the level that he was at in the story, those things were going to almost be eaten alive. And I don't know if that was intentional to not give a solution because 
maybe that's maybe that was the purpose of the piece was to be so honest about this is how I feel right now. This is where I'm at in my life. I don't know where I'm going, um, but it 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 definitely strikes a chord when you read that because whether you were at the same position as him or whether you're somewhere else in your career, when you read this, you you share that feeling of utility that that he's going through and. You, you want to help, but you also feel like, well, that's just the way it goes. So it challenges your perceptions of what is the status quo and how involved you get, which considering all the, the, the movements we've had, various social movements in the last two, three years, you, you start to question yourself, well, what part do I play in this? You know, how am I being honest with people in their reviews? And am I saying, listen, you're never going to go anywhere here. Go find a job somewhere else. Or am I just saying, oh, you know, next year, just work on your, you know, your spelling or something just to keep the person in the meaningless role that they're in sometimes, you know, it, 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 it makes the reader ask themselves questions and it also makes the reader want to be compassionate, but then triggers that inbuilt capitalistic perception that a lot of us have. Uh, so I, th- I thought it was well done. I like the question, like, is there a curse of having a philosophical mind? It wasn't, I guess, stated as a question in the piece, but is that a curse? I guess my impulse would say, like, yeah, I kind of got that when that when that line came up. But is it really a curse? Because then we we have access to maybe a different perspective, you know, uh, an objective kind of overhead view of things that if uh, maybe people without a philosophical mind don't have. Yeah. So it is. Is that a curse? To what extent is that a curse? I think I'll answer this quickly, and then I will hop <laughs> off. <laughs> but I. That's also something I think about pretty often because I think I feel pretty deeply and perceive (laughs) a lot of things all the time. Um, And that's why I end up writing about them because I kind of need to get them out of my head or else I run myself in circles and go crazy. (laughs) Um, But I don't, I don't know. It's not a thing I would ever give up because I do think it gives me a perspective and this going all the way back to the first thing we looked at just a sense of beauty persisting. And I truly like do believe that there's something beautiful in everything, or at least something to be learned, which I think is a good thing. <laughs> but I, I do often struggle with like, I wish I could turn this off sometimes because I would probably cry a lot less. Like it might, I would be less stressed out sometimes if I didn't think about things so much. And if I could just do it without caring so much. I think that like there's something to be said for that, absolutely. But I don't necessarily think that it's it's bad or I don't think it's worse or better than any other way of existing, I guess, because I don't know what it's like to exist differently. And I would assume that there's blessings and curses in all different types of minds and ways of viewing the world. But I think that it's probably a struggle to find balance no matter where you're looking at it from. It's just a different kind of balance that you need. And that is my two cents. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us. Have a good evening. Thank you for inviting me. This was really fun. Have a great night. Thank y'all. You. Bye. Thank you. Bye. I think it can be. Think a- about that. I think, you know, if you have a philosoph- philosophical mind and you get stuck in a menial job where you stew in your own thoughts whilst reality runs away from you and continues at its pace, I think it can be very damaging. And the beauty of someone like 
this having that kind of mind and writing about it could be that it brings awareness to a couple of hiring managers who might read it or somebody else who's, you know, it, it might convince somebody else, hey, I, I'm just like this. I need to make a change. I don't want to sound like this. Uh, so it, it can be used to motivate others, I guess, and educate. But I think for the actual individuals who gets, who really do get stuck in jobs like this, I think it's very difficult. And they probably suffer with some version of anxiety or depression or something. Dread. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I said, or dread, a feeling of dread. <laughs> or existential dread, or what she was describing, I call the uh, gasoline-powered hamster wheel of self-doubt. Uh, but is the individual that has, you know, a, a responsibility to figure out how to apply whatever wandering uh, thought streams are going on, and then there's what what society you're in and what it rewards. And unfortunately, we're not in the one that rewards. If your poem gets published, you get a thousand dollars. That's just assumed. So, so you would be able to justify or feel validated. But at least he's in a society where he can get his thoughts out there. And if he's lucky and he is networking. And unfortunately, that's the eat your breakfast, eat your vegetables comment is if he's networking right, that advanced skill set that is very wide, if a little bit superficial, might have him bump into an aging rocker who is able to figure out that skill set is appropriate in the right circumstances. So it's just a matter of of taking enough personal responsibility, but also networking and being part of the larger systems so that uh, you kind of hope the pinball lands in the right slot. Thanks for that story, Paul, earlier, because I was hoping somebody would have some kind of story of, you know, getting a job in a strange way or leaving a job in a strange way or some kind of mishap, you know, of finding a job or interviewing or something like that. So, yeah, that's what, it, yeah, there are, there's, there is an element of luck. I guess that's kind of part of going back to some of the other things, like some of the uncertainty there's, there has to be some room, or I guess my view of it, would there you'd be better off to leave some room for an amount of uncertainty because otherwise you're just going to kind of stay on one track. And some of the most interesting things that have happened to me, to the extent that they are interesting, have happened when I've gotten knocked off track a little bit. I mean, not enough to, you know, do damage or something like that, but to get bumped off a little bit. Yeah, and and I, and I think that's the appeal of this piece is that it, it it speaks to everybody in its own way, which is which says something for the writing in the sense that I picked it up from when I was younger to when I, to where I am now. You guys saw it from your perspective in in a way that's very real. So it still has a strong impact. It's not like it's a diluted impact that we all felt. When you read it, it it has a powerful application to your own life. The way the writer has put the work down on paper, and I think that it could have very easily come off as somebody whining. And like Chris mentioned earlier, he doesn't end up bitter. And and you keep waiting for that moment where you're going to think he's just going to say something now that is going to be out of line. And he he never does. And that's the the part that ties the story together because at the end of the day, we all know that we still have to make money somehow. And this guy's still got to eat. So he's still soldiering on. He's just letting you know this is how he feels day in and day out. And it, it's, it takes courage, I think, to, to admit that. Yeah, I sense that because he refrains from what I imagine is kind of two ruts, entitlement for, and bitterness, which, of course, are related, but he does not fall into the orbit of either of those two ruts of gravity. And the fact that he doesn't has its own 
optimistic spin of, you know, well, he's going to keep pressing on. He's 36 now. Maybe he meets the right person when he's 40 or when he's 45, but uh, maybe a little underlying optimism or existential kind of willingness to push forward, even though it's going to be a multi-pronged approach as opposed to a ironclad, I have one goal and one dream and I will make that happen because uh, both can work and both can fail. Mm. Nice. So I think uh, we did a pretty good job of covering the pieces we set out to cover. Right. Anything uh, either of you want to add, talk about, throw out there? Just that this is the closest I come to actual human interaction. So I appreciate it very much. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just want to say thanks again for making it an amazing issue. I'm, I'm, I really marveled at the amount of work that you covered and how you tied the themes in so nicely together. I don't know if you, were you actively looking for a theme or it just happened to come to you naturally? I don't know. It's probably a little bit of both. I think I have a kind of a natural kind of seeing connections. I was in one of my classes uh, recently, we were talking about more like professional writing and even some cover letter, getting into cover letter territory. Um, so talking about your strengths and things like that. So I think one of my strengths is like seeing connections between things that are necessarily connected. So this plays right into what, what I feel like I'm good at was taking, you know, 10 poems and five pictures and two short stories and like putting them in an order that makes kind of sense. But then also, yeah, naturally there's going to be a little bit of um, making selections. Sometimes you do get into like a, oh, I just, those coincidences, oh, I just got one that was about this or use this kind of interesting phrase. And then the title of this next one had that same word in it or something. Uh, so sometimes there's just coincidences. Um, I think all three of us are, are old enough to be aware of the time-honored art of creating a playlist, uh, a oh, personally curated playlist. Yeah. I, um, actually, I yeah. might be the only one old enough to have done it on a tape. <laughs> like I actually did it on a cassette tape playlist. But it's that same process. You start random, but then patterns start to emerge, and it turns into its own separate art form. And I think you're doing great. Yeah, I was. that reminds me that when I, when I kind of plan out, I do like a – just kind of like write, um, I don't know if that comes up or not, but I just kind of write things down in terms of like what what the order of them is going to be. And then in my mind, my my I've never really became a musician, but that was when I was 14, like that was the coolest thing I thought was possible. So I still, part of my brain is still there. And so when I make this kind of list, I'm like, this is like a track list. Like this is what somebody would feel like when they're making a set. Um, yeah. Yeah, so like that kind of, that, part is like that's gratifying in a in a way even though it's not quite as cool as writing a set list well that was i mean that was the interesting thing to me it felt like it was one of those albums from the 90s where you know the whole album has a feel and has a flow <laughs> you seldom get these days i mean i don't want to date you no, thank you yeah thank you i for, feel like uh, that it, gave, it had that feel that only only people who were, had favorite music in the 90s would would remember how a, a whole album sets the tone for a couple of years in your life yeah i'm so glad you said that because i i mean that's how i that's how i listened to music in my formative years and probably even beyond that was i was always an album person i got off of that a little bit when things went digital and i kind of made a little bit of a transition into digital music but i still have i still have my cds they're there and i still would prefer to like listen to an album that's just the, that's the height of that art form for me even 
more so than live performance. I was always, you know, the, the album is what counts. There is a behind the scenes connection I'm sure I'm making in my, in my approach here is to put 10 or 12 pieces together. Like the gallery is like 10 or 12, which is like generally the amount of songs on an album that ideally would flow together in some kind of a coherent way. So yeah, we're bringing something to light, I think that I might have been working with. Like here's hoping that Wild Roof comes back as hard and as strong as vinyl. <laughs> well, cassettes are cassettes are around. Cassettes are around still. And I think part of the appeal of the vinyl album, actually, you can buy these at Walmart now, is a nostalgia for sitting down and listening to an album all the way through, kind of letting it be the journey, yeah. uh, not knowing where you're going to go, but listening for the associations. And uh, apparently you're having success so far, so keep up the good work. Yeah, hopefully. I was actually trying to interview a musician. It did, it did not work out, as far <laughs> as I can tell. But These damn uh, temperamental musicians. That was that was in, there was an attempt made, and it one or two exchanges of information, but it never never materialized. But I would like to get a musician on. I mean, other than you, Chris. I mean, a uh, a rock and roll musician, not a uh, not a jazz musician. I'm here as an English nerd first. Yep, yep, yep. Um, all right, so do I dare uh, press the record, press the uh, stop record button? Do I dare, do I dare descend the stair? <laughs> End it on a high note. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, thanks again for joining me, and we'll talk to everybody next time. Sounds great. Thank you, guys.